this political upheaval has resulted in all of the kind of implicit agreements reduced to nothing and the political ground on which everyone stands suddenly became very unstable. The return of military rule in Myanmar is rearranging the political chessboard in some unexpected ways. Today, on In Asia, from the Asia Foundation, I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Yang. On February 1st, Myanmar awoke to the news that the military had retaken power, ousting the government of the National League for Democracy and jailing many of its leaders. But the political realignment has also overturned the existing order of the country's decades-long internal conflicts, and the effect on fragile peace-building efforts is still unfolding. Joining us now to talk about these events and what the future may hold for this complex, multi-ethnic state is Tabia Campbell-Pauly. She's a senior program officer with the Asia Foundation's Conflict and Fragility Unit. Tabia, welcome to Inasia. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So, Tabia, an essay in this week's Inasia blog by a Myanmar political analyst speaks of a remarkable realignment taking place in that country since the upheaval in early February. Who are the players in this drama? Myanmar's political landscape is made up of an incredible diversity of actors. Um, and the key ones that are involved in this most recent kind of period of turmoil are on the one hand, government actors from across the whole spectrum of Myanmar's political parties. So that includes the National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, which was recently ousted from its position in government, all the way to the uh, USDP, um, which is the military aligned uh, main party in parliament. But we've also got uh, a number of other groups involved. The main one that I would wanna mention first of all would be the civil society network in Myanmar from urban dwelling, Burma ethnic majority representatives, all the way to ethnic minority communities who live more in the border areas. There's a high level of political engagement across the board. We've also got, of course, Myanmar's military, which is known as the Tatmadaw, the leaders of which have recently taken control of the country's governmental institutions. And at the same time, they are still engaged in decades old conflicts in many of the border areas of the country. Involved in those conflicts tend to be ethnic armed organizations. These fall into two main categories, those who have signed ceasefires and uh, peace agreements with the government and the, the Tamador, and those who have not and who are still in situations of direct military en- engagement right now. Tabia, when you speak of ethnic armed organizations and other armed groups, this is part of a history of political turbulence in Myanmar that really goes back almost to the founding of the independent nation. How do things look different this time? How have recent events uh, rearranged the pieces on the chessboard? There are a few things that make this situation uh, very different from those that have come before. Myanmar has just had almost a decade of a quasi-democratic system of government. And many people are unwilling to accept the military's takeover of government and would like to see a return to um, the democratic systems that they'd seen so far. We can also talk about the fact that um, Myanmar has just come out of a period of, of pretty much unprecedented economic development. And this political upheaval that we've seen has undone a lot of this progress Then another point that's really important to make that I think has got many onlookers uh, very excited has been the role that social media and the connectivity through the internet has played. Particularly, we've seen 
a lot more involvement of young people, um, even teenagers, than in, in previous moments of upheaval. And then the final point that I think is really important to make is that the public discussions that many civil society actors have been engaging with since February have started to go beyond just demands for the restoration of the National League for Democracy government and have really started to touch on much deeper issues that have persisted since Myanmar's independence. And many of these discussions are being driven by ethnic minority communities. So this moment has provided an opportunity for many in Myanmar to ha have greater reflection around and understanding around the, the persecution that many ethnic and religious minority communities, including the Rohingya, have experienced in the past Let's talk about the long process centered on the national ceasefire agreement. How have recent events changed the state of play in the peace process? It's been quite interesting because the NCA has been kind of the cornerstone of the government's peacebuilding agenda. However, the situation between the ethnic armed organizations has continued to be in significant flux since that first uh, moment of change in February, and particularly between those groups that have signed the ceasefire and those who have not. Many parts of civil society in Myanmar have expressed a strong desire to see greater unity and coming together of armed groups across the whole spectrum because they could represent a really important counterweight to the powerful military. In the meantime, the political turmoil is resulting in further instability, particularly in areas that are already contested and conflict affected so mainly in Myanmar's borderlands, because both the military and the armed groups are scrambling to consolidate their territory and resources. And there are high risks associated with that instability that can result in violence and displacement, loss of land and income for the communities that live there. Just to follow up on this point, of these many ethnic armed organizations, some joined the national ceasefire agreement and made a bet on a cessation of hostilities. Others kept their armies. Who made the right bet? <laughs> that's that's the million-dollar question that I think right. many are asking right now. <laughs> there are a few of these groups, both within the camp that have signed the ceasefire and outside of it, that do have sufficient resources and uh, troops to actually provide some kind of counterweight to the military so within the camp of the ceasefire signatories, we have the Karen National Union, which is a really significant political and armed actor in the southeast of the country. They initially were seeking to figure out how they could have stability within their political agreements and processes that they had committed to. But when widespread protests began in territories that the KNU controls, and the military was looking to control those social movements, the armed group was playing a very important role in providing protection and security for its communities. And this then made it difficult to continue their dialogue and their negotiations with the military. But then at the same time, we've seen in the north of the country, um, where uh, many of the most powerful non-state armed groups um, have their territories, such as the Kachin Independence Army, which is the, the group that we write about in the article, they have found that this political upheaval has resulted in all of the kind of implicit agreements 
reduced to to nothing and the the political ground on which everyone stands suddenly became very unstable so this did in some ways provide them opportunities to quickly retake territories that had been lost in previous conflicts or try and consolidate their control over key resource extraction areas that are important revenue raising opportunities for them but then there has also been much higher risk to the communities that live in those areas as the military doesn't currently have a ceasefire in place and there are no conditions on which these these communities can you know progress forward in in peaceful dialogue so to be a Myanmar has borders with India China Laos Thailand and Bangladesh and it's precisely these borderlands where Myanmar's ethnic minorities are mostly concentrated How are these borderlands affected by the recent turmoil and how does that differ from the center of the country? Yeah, so this moment of political change has been a real reminder, I think, that communities in border areas can experience this kind of conflict and turmoil very differently than those that live in the center where governance institutions and mechanisms tend to be a bit stronger. In Myanmar, many of the communities that live in the borderlands rely on primary industries as their key sources of income, and these are often affected immediately when conflict spikes in the areas. So, an example would be um, farmers that would be cut off from supply chains in the rest of the country and unable to sell their goods, or traders who are unable to access markets if infrastructure is destroyed. But then also we can see that there is a high risk of uh, limited aid and support for those who might have lost income or lost land. And some of the strategies that these communities may engage in to get through these difficult patches could involve illicit activity, which can then further isolate the, the local economies. On the other hand, the proximity to the border can also provide uh, opportunities um, such as you know, rapid migration to safer areas or access to more stable markets and trading opportunities that are unaffected by conflict. So this is a dynamic that we have seen in the past with um, a mass influx of um, Rohingya community members from Myanmar into Bangladesh when they were fleeing violence in 2017. It's really important to recognize the particularity of how conflict is experienced between border areas and more central areas. And this is really the main focus of what our project is trying to achieve. The Asia Foundation's Tabia Campbell-Pauly. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And that's our show for this week. You can read more about these fascinating developments in Myanmar in this week's In Asia blog. It's very good information. And while you're there, and I feel like I've said this before, why not subscribe to the In Asia podcast? Seriously, why not? Why not subscribe? <laughs> Until next time, I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Yang. Thanks for listening.